Well, I'd encourage you this morning, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn in them with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. We've been uh, thinking recently over the past several weeks about it, what it means, what it looks like uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ in our world. The Bible says that we are in one sense exiles. We are in a world that is ultimately not our home. We are ultimately not of this world, the Bible says. And so we've been calling this series the life of a pilgrim. The life of one who's on a journey. And we began last week looking at the pilgrim's progress. That the progress that is necessary in a pilgrim's life, the inevitable inevitable fruit that must come from a life that has given itself over to Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked specifically at the epidemic of worry, of anxiety in our lives. No doubt striking a chord with many of us to varying levels. Well, this morning we turn to what I would term as a close cousin of worry. Because both worry and what we're going to look at today wrestle with the lack of control of our circumstances due to the fact that we're creatures, due to the fact that we are not the Creator, we are not God. See, anxiety that we looked at last week primarily arises out of the unknown, right? It it agonizes with the question, what if you fill in the blank? Well, today we look at the question, if only. That question that arises out out of that which is known. That which is known, but in our estimation, we deem it unacceptable. And so today we're going to look at the issue of discontentment. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20 is our text. It's found in your bulletin. You can follow along. We're really going to be zeroing in on just verses 10 through 13, and specifically verse 11. But I wanted to read a little more context of Paul's letter here to the church. So listen as I read. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply 
every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you didn't know this about me, and I I apologize if I lose some respect immediately in some of your eyes by saying this, but I am, I'm an apple guy. I'm an apple guy. I like my MacBook. I like my iMac at home. I like my iPhone. I'm not part of that, at least I don't think I'm part of that whole Apple subculture uh, that exists. I'm not cultish about my love for Apple products. And that's probably illustrated by the fact that I, I really love the new line of Samsung commercials that are coming out to, to counteract Apple products and specifically the iPhone. I don't know how many of you watch TV. You don't have to watch a lot because I don't watch a lot, but this commercial's on a lot, this series of commercials. It's, it's an ad campaign for the Samsung phone. And it's a, it's a campaign entitled, The Next Big Thing is Already Here. The Next Big Thing is Already Here. And it's a series of commercials that make fun of the Apple cult, which, you know, constantly, whenever any new iPhone is released, there's people that camp out in front of the Apple stores for hours and hours, maybe overnight, Apple enthusiasts eager for the next prog- progress. And so, uh, this commercial that I'm thinking of specifically has this line of, of people waiting for the new iPhone and they're talking about uh, the phone to their friends and some of my favorite quotes are, the headphone jack is going to be on the bottom. <laughs> Love that quote. And then one guy says, all I'm saying is that they should have a priority line for those who have waited five times. You see, it's more than a commercial, particularly that last line of the commercial. It's more than a commercial. It's really a social commentary. And in some ways, those commercials and that marketing campaign, the next big thing is already here, is in my opinion, a social indictment. And I mean not just for them, those Apple enthusiasts. I mean for us. I mean, for me. You see, there is this simple illustration in that marketing campaign of our discontentment. Our discontentment. There's, of course, an absurdity about waiting in line for hours and hours for the latest version of a phone. And I always find it striking when they show that on the news... And then 12 minutes later on the same news program, we see people waiting in line in a third world country for their daily ration of rice or water. It's always so striking to me. Of course, our discontentment goes much further than our love for the latest gadget or for the latest Apple product. See, our hearts grumble over our circumstances. Our hearts grumble over our health. Our hearts grumble over the relationships that we are 
presently in or the relationships that we wish that we would be in. Our hearts grumble over the state of our careers, the lack of advancement or affirmation in that career, etc. I could go on and on and on about the discontentment of our hearts. You see, we live in a world of want. A world that in many ways fuels our discontentment and our hearts love that kind of a world. A world that hangs before us this perpetual carrot that tells us that there is something more. There is something better. There is something here that will satisfy your longings. There is that next big thing and maybe that, probably that, yes, that will make you happy. Oh, many of you remember, this is something that we highlighted, that God's Word highlighted for us at the beginning of our study of the book of Ruth. The if-only game, we called it. If only blank, you fill it in, then I'd be happy. If only blank, then I wouldn't need anything else. If only blank, then I'd be safe and secure. If only blank, then I would never say if only again. See, the Bible instructs, the Bible encourages us this morning that that's a game. That's a game that we shouldn't play, not just because it's sin, but because it's one that we can't win. It's a lie. What do we call it when we looked at the book of Ruth? We called it the greener grass conspiracy. That the grass is surely greener on the other side of whatever. And I told you then, and I'll remind you now, that the Greener Grass Conspiracy is the title of a book, a very helpful book on the issue of contentment that I commend to you if you have a chance to read. But, you know, the contentment is not a new problem. That book is a modern book written in the last several years. But the Puritans, the Puritans, many of you have read and love the Puritans, these old scholars from hundreds of years ago, the Puritans wrote much on the issue of contentment. And so I'd also commend to you Jeremiah Burroughs and Thomas Watson and their work on contentment in the Christian life. If this is a deep-seated struggle, then this morning is not going to be enough for you. But I hope it's a start. I hope it's a start for all of us as we think about contentment. Well, what is discontentment? What is discontentment? Is it really that big of a deal, Nate? I mean, is it really sin? Discontentment? In short, we might define discontentment as unhappiness with our present circumstances. That's the simple answer to what is discontentment. Unhappiness with our present circumstances. And that could be a variety of different things. And you think, whew, that that encourages me because I have never been unhappy with my present circumstances. So this is not an issue for me, Nate. And of course, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek because I think all of us struggle at some level, in some area, with discontentment, myself included. God's people have always had 
some experience with this, and God has had an opinion on this as well. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles, I'll read for you, you don't need to, but Numbers chapter 11, the first verse, we read this, and the people, that is God's people, the nation of Israel, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned down upon them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Wow. Complaining is simply a symptom of discontentment, and that's what God's people were doing here. You see, if we are going to have a robust view of God's sovereignty and God's providence in our lives, which we definitely should have, then all of our circumstances, all of our misfortunes, all of our successes, and those things that we are convinced are misfortunes but really aren't, are from the hand of our Heavenly Father. And we were reminded of that last week. That to complain against our circumstances then is more than just an affront to God. It is sin. It's a sin that falls in line with the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment saying, do not covet. The book of Hebrews instructs In Hebrews 13, 15, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of the world. You see, contentment, brothers and sisters, is a command. Discontentment is disobedience. And in making this case, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that being discontent with the current phone that you have in your pocket is equivalent to murdering your neighbor. I'm not saying that, but I recognize that before a holy and kind God, discontentment is a sin that we need to repent of, that we need to grow in. Well, having established that, that it's a sin, you still may be asking, but what exactly is discontentment, Nate? Are you saying, or is God saying, that I shouldn't want anything? That I should be just like a stoic? I should be stale? No movement? Never longed for something? I mean, I longed for years that Anna would fall in love with me. I longed for years that she would let me marry her. Was that wrong? Was I sinning in that longing? Well, I heard a good illustration of this as I was preparing to preach on this subject to you in this text. I heard a great illustration from Tim Keller, PCA pastor in Manhattan. And he says this, he says, there's a difference between wanting and coveting. Wanting equals you are the dog and your want is the tail. Coveting, coveting or discontentment would say, your want is the dog, and you are the tail. 
See the difference? If you are ruled by something, if you are enslaved by something, if you are saying, if your heart is saying to yourself, I have got to have that to be happy. That is discontentment. That is sin. And now would be a good point, or a good time to note that there is a discontentment that doesn't relegate God to the shadows. There is a holy discontentment about the state of our sanctification, about the state of where we are in this journey that strives to know and to love God more. And of course, that's what we're after today. We want to be changed by God's Word because we're not content in our sin. We want to grow. We want to be different. But there is a discontentment that pushes God to the shadows, that doesn't make God and Christ the treasure that He is. Going back a couple weeks ago to the modern parable study that many of you were a part of, that, that treasure that you find in a field that is worth selling everything, that you might run after it. I want to state this positively today. I don't want to just hear... I don't, I don't want you to just hear me say, don't be discontent. That's not helpful. No, this morning I want to hold out the truth of God's Word, which says that satisfaction can be found in a world of want. The good news is that contentment, true contentment, is possible in your life, in every area of your life, even down to those 10,000 mundane moments. What is Christian contentment then? We've talked about what discontentment is. What is Christian contentment? Jeremiah Burroughs, the old Puritan, defines it as this. I think it's helpful. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of mind, frame of spirit, excuse me, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That is what we are after this morning. That is what the Apostle Paul in some small way had achieved for himself. That is what we are called to as followers of Christ. And so three truths for us to think about this morning. Three truths for us to move, to help us move in that direction of true contentment. And the first one is this. True contentment is a matter of the heart. True contentment is a matter of the heart. See, the first thing that we need to recognize and remember on this path to contentment in our lives is that contentment is not tied to our circumstances. Paul says that regardless of the situation here, Regardless of the situation, plenty and hunger, abundance and need, in any circumstances, he can be content. 
See, and this teaching is so different, it's so contrary to what the world says. The world says that contentment has everything to do with either more or less. For most of us, because we live in this materialistic world, it is more that's needed, right? If I just had a little more, then I would be content. But for others, for others in the world, or especially in those situations where we're not talking about our stuff, where we're not talking about goods, less is what is required in order to make us happy, in order to make us content. If I had just a little less health problems, a little less of this relationship strain, then I would be content. And Paul says no. It doesn't matter. Your circumstances don't matter. Contentment, true contentment, is ultimately a matter of the heart. It's interesting that the word that Paul uses here in verse 11 of our passage was a, very, was a word that was very current in Paul's day. It was a term that was used in Greek philosophy to denote the idea of self-sufficiency. A trait that was very much desired in Greek philosophy. If you were able to rise above the needs of those around you, it was the highest form of achievement to not be dependent on anyone else. And Paul takes that word that's common in Greek philosophy and he brings it into the church and infuses it with Christian meaning. And here in our context, he says that in contrast to the world's contentment that is all about inner peace, that is all about indifference to the needs of those around you, true contentment, in a sense, is rising above your circumstances. Not through some Zen cleansing of the mind, but through a renewal of the mind through a casting down of yourself upon the power of God, as he says in verse 6, as he says, pray when you're anxious. As he says in verse 11, when he says, my God will supply every need. You see, it's not self-sufficiency that's the path to true contentment. It is Dependence. It is that vital union with Jesus Christ, that intimate fellowship that we have with Him, those who call on the name of Christ. And you sit here and you say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. He hasn't experienced the kind of challenges that I've experienced. Well, I'm sure he hasn't experienced your specific angst about your outdated phone. But Paul's been through a bit. He says here in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low. That isn't the understatement of the century. Here is a man who pens these words from prison. Acts 14 recounts him being stoned. Acts 16 recounts him being beaten with rods for the sake of the gospel. And then there's that great passage in 2 Corinthians 11 
Starting at verse 24. Five times at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If anyone had a right to be discontent, to just say, forget about it. I'm not going to learn contentment. It was Paul. But you see, Paul had the ability, because of a renewed heart, to rise above his circumstances and to claim that there was contentment. So the first thing we need to recognize is that true contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has to do with your heart. Now, this isn't me or Paul being insensitive. I mean, does this mean that we shouldn't pray or we shouldn't hope or cry out to God that our circumstances should change? No, Paul's not saying that. But he's saying you can't be ruled by that. You can't be the tail to that dog of want. Why? Because we are ruled by another. And that's the second truth that I want us to think about. Not just that true contentment is a matter of the heart, but true contentment is found in a person. True contentment is found in a person. Paul makes this New York best-selling claim. One that would get him on the talk show circuit for a whole year. He's been all through this. We just read some of his account. And yet, he can be content. Why? Because he has the secret. Oh, we all want to know secrets. Doesn't matter if we care what they're about. But we want to know this secret. What is the secret? There was a book written not too long ago, a few years ago, entitled The Secret. Never read it. It was a very popular book. I think it was the New York Times bestseller, if I remember right. And interestingly enough, that book that came out, The Secret, made a similar claim to Paul. It said that contentment was possible. This woman said that she had found contentment, and she had found contentment through positive thinking that had created peace and happiness in her. And of course, of course, this is where our flesh naturally goes in times of difficult circumstances. We naturally turn inward. We naturally go to our inner reserves. And that's why Paul says the secret is a secret. It's not the first path. It's not the first thing we think of. But he says it's the only path. It's the only true path. And it's available to all. Romans 8.13, For if we live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, Paul reminds us that contentment is a gospel command. True contentment is found in a person. It can only be found in embracing 
and following the person of Jesus Christ. You may be here this morning and you have never found contentment. You have never repented of your own self-sufficiency. You constantly go to those inner reserves in times of difficulty, in times of crisis. I want to proclaim to you this morning, stop doing that. Because there's no hope there. Contentment is found in a person. This is where you must begin by laying aside your self-sufficiency and becoming dependent upon your Creator, the One who sent His Son to die for you that you might live for Him. And I know that for many of you in this room, for maybe most of you in this room, you've made that first step. You are desirous of following Christ. You are desirous of getting your vision off of yourself and on to His sufficiency. And I just remind you this morning that He calls you back to His presence and His power in your discontentment. We looked at those phrases. We looked at those words, those promises of His presence, those promises of His power. When Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, he's talking about that vital union that you have with Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. And what that means for combating your sin. What that means for putting off your flesh. Because of the Gospel, you are in Christ. In Christ, you have the perspective, you have the childlike trust, you have the heart to not just endure, but to rejoice in those circumstances outside of your control. Do we really believe that this morning? Do we really believe that true contentment is found in a person? It's the only path. And I know that some of you here this morning are in difficult circumstances. Some of you are dealing with things that I have never dealt with in my life and may never deal with in my life. I'm not trying to belittle your struggle, but I do want to remind you of your hope. We quoted earlier in this service, Psalm 73, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Run to the reserves of Jesus. Rely on His presence in your life, His promises in His Word, and the treasure that He is above and all, above and beyond all things that you chase after. You know, when Paul says in verse 12 of our passage that he has been brought low, it's the same verb that he used back in chapter 2 to describe the Lord Jesus. Where we read a familiar passage, and being being found in human form, he humbled himself. He brought himself low by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. 
Whatever your circumstances this morning, whatever your temptation, your tendency to discontentment, you are not alone. He knows your circumstances. He's given you the power to deal with your circumstances, to rejoice in your circumstances, and He has gone through much worse than you ever will. His own Father turned His back on Him for your sake and for my sake. That's the Gospel. And so He calls you to abide in Him. Let Him be your treasure. Let Him be your peace. Abide in my love, He says. But one more thing for us to see briefly this morning, and it's this. True contentment is learned. True contentment is learned. Ah, we want one pill. We want one equation. We want one magic bullet that will fix it all now. Not next week. Not tomorrow, but within the hour, please. And Paul says it's not there. It's not there. Contentment is something that has to be learned. It's a process. That's important for us to keep in front of us. I'm not saying that you, after hearing such a profound sermon, which this is not, that you'll wake up tomorrow morning content in all circumstances. No, you've got to learn this, but how? How do we do this? Let me give you a couple practical ways to learn contentment. This is homework in the school of Christ, okay? First, run to the promises. That's not revolutionary, but it's true. Run to the promises. Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, writes, there is no condition that a godly man or woman can be in where there is not a promise in the Scriptures to help him in that condition. And that is the way of his contentment. To go to the promises and get from the promises that which may supply. And of course, to run to the promises, to get the promises, to stockpile the promises, you've got to be in communion. You've got to be in fellowship with your Maker. You've got to be in fellowship and saturate yourself with His Word. You've got to be crying out to Him in those times of anxiety. Verse 6, you've got to be recognizing that He will supply all your needs. Verse 11, if you do that, that's a good first step. And if you do that, you will recognize, as we were reminded last week, that God is your Father. He's your Heavenly Father. He's given you so much. And there's so much still out there waiting for you. How easy for us to just get fixated on that which we don't have. Forgetting about the stockpile of blessing that we sit on. We need to recognize the things that we cling to for our identity, for our joy, for our delight. We need to unmask them and let them fade away in the shadow of the cross, in the gospel, and the treasure that Christ is. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I am more than this discontentment that I feel. There is something more for me. My Heavenly Father knows 
what I have and what I don't have. Thomas Watson, another old Puritan, says, Our base hearts are more discontented at one loss than thankful for a hundred mercies. God has plucked one branch of grapes from you, but how many precious clusters are left behind? Your righteousness, your life, your breath, your daily bread, the hope of glory. The prophet Habakkuk had this perspective. He was given this perspective. We read in Habakkuk 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the beasts of the field yield no food, no f- the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So run to the promises. Secondly, just to close, in this learning of contentment, run from the lies. Run to the promises and run from the lies. And this was a great point in that Greener Grass Conspiracy book that I read. Run from the lie that God is withholding things from me. If you think back to the garden, that was the lie that the serpent told Eve. That God is withholding something from you. Something good that He doesn't want you to have. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that God owes you something. That was the attitude of the older brother in the story of the lost sons. (laughs) I've been here. Where's my party? Oh, God doesn't owe us anything. Run from that lie. Lie number three, if... If I get it, then I'll be happy. We've talked a little bit about that. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. If you need help knowing that that won't make you happy. And then number four, run from the lie. You know what you need best. You don't know. Going back a couple weeks, there's always more than we can see. So trust your Heavenly Father who's given you His Son that you might have life in Him. Believe that God wants you to find contentment. He wants you to be content, not like the world, but in your heart, through a person, learning and clinging to the promises that He holds out to you. May He give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such wonderful promises for our hearts to cling to this morning. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to cling to these truths as we go out into a world that tells us that we don't have enough. That tells us we'd be happy if. Father, help us to run to your promises. To run from the lies. To trust you above all things. That in doing so, we might scream to the world around us, oh, there's something so much better than what you're chasing after. Come follow me as I follow him. Father, this we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.